0: Hello Walters, and welcome back. It's been a while since we've released one of our clinical episodes on here, so we thought we'd make you a lovely little compilation of some of the biggest aha moments from a whole series that we did over the past few months on those tricky little beans that filter our blood for us and stop us from being poisoned by our own waste products. We're talking, of course, about the kidneys. We've spoken to some really brilliant minds on these really complicated little organs and we thought we'd bring you some of the best bits. First off, we've got a few bits of wisdom from small animal medicine guru, Prof. Jill Madison, about making sense of azotemia and urine-specific gravity. And before you go, yeah, I've got this, it's not as straightforward as I thought. And there are definitely a few traps to avoid that Jill outlines in this conversation. Then we have Dr. Roseanne Jepsen, who is another medicine specialist and associate professor at the Royal Vet College, with a lot of research under her belt around kidneys, and specifically hypertension. So of course, we talk to her about hypertension and kidneys, and then we finish off with another topic that makes heads hurt around kidney failure, calcium, with specialist Dr. Clint Udelman from Insight Mobile Diagnostics. Now, these are not easy topics, and on the full episodes, we dive a lot deeper still. But if you haven't listened to our clinical content before, you won't know this, but this is kind of our thing. We love to take on the stuff that we, and most other vets, get a bit stuck on in general practice. And then we find somebody who really knows their stuff and ask the questions that we know you want to ask as well to see if we can get it to make some more sense. Why? Because we've learned that it's those things, the things that you don't quite understand at vet school, or those conditions and cases that make you go, oh no, not that case, when you see it arrive in practice. Those things actually erode away at some of the joy of clinical practice. And then on the flip side, once that light bulb switches on and you have that moment of, ah, I get it, you actually start to look forward to some of those cases and work becomes more fun. We have our subscribers tell us this time and time again. Stuff like, I can't wait to see my next case of DKA or I've got my mojo back for work. If you haven't checked it out yet, you can try it for free at vvn.supercast.com. Oh, and our subscribers also get beautiful summarized show notes to refer back to for each of the episodes, because we know that some of these hard topics need a second pass or a quick revise when you actually do see that case. Okay, please enjoy this little journey through the glomerulus and into the nephron. We kick off with Prof. Jill Madison and a monologue on renal physiology that might make your head go, <clears throat> but it's really important that you listen to this for the sake of your patients.
1: I think the thing about azotemia is and where the problem lies is that for whatever reason we all get taught renal physiology very badly at university. I don't care what university it is. I got taught it badly. We teach it badly. There's something about how it gets taught that's really poor and of all of the tests that we have that we do well no, we you need to understand the pathophysiology of changes of many tests to understand how to interpret them but with urea creatinine and urine specific gravity you really need to understand the pathophysiology and the the problem with azotemia is that exactly what you're saying Hugh oh it's kidney disease and so there's this implication this assumption that if an animal's azotemic that it's got kidney disease and so that's just not true And it's understanding what causes azotemia, what causes inappropriate urine concentration, and when do the two come together and when do they not. And so it's easier in cats because there are fewer non-renal disorders that cause azotemia and impaired urine concentration. But it's more Um. challenging in dogs because there are diseases that will cause azotemia and impaired urine concentration that are not structural kidney disease
0: that's not a sentence you hear very often it's easier in cats almost nothing is easier in cats.
1: yeah exactly <laughs> yeah no exactly you know usually cats i think as we've talked about you know diagnosing pancreatitis is a nightmare and all sorts of things liver disease is a nightmare but in in cats it is a bit more straightforward because there aren't the complicating the same the same pathophysiology applies it's just they're not the complicating disorders that can pretend to be kidney disease if you like that aren't kidney disease
0: okay so should we start with that with saying what are the most common misconceptions and misunderstandings that veterinarians have about azotemia and urine specific gravity
1: okay so i think probably at the heart of it is that veterinarians don't necessarily understand that the causes of azotemia and the causes of um, inappropriate urine specific gravity are different in most disorders except for structural kidney disease so in structural kidney disease the animal is azotemic and has impaired ability to concentrate their urine and to dilute their urine and it's because they have fewer nephrons and the nephrons are damaged etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's absolutely fine But the drivers for azotemia is the glomerular filtration rate, which is the flow of the the filtrate through the kidney. And that's what drives azotemia. So if that slows down, you get azotemia and you get that will slow down for a number of reasons. We know it can slow down if there's reduced blood flow to the kidney. So that will happen if you've got shock or you've got dehydration. It will slow down if you've got constriction of the afferent arteriole that goes into the glomerulus, and that happens in hypercalcemia. It will slow down if you have serious glomerular disease, but without tubular disease. It will slow down if you have structural kidney disease, so you have loss of nephrons, and it will slow down, obviously, if you have a post-renal obstruction that's stopping urine flow. So there's all those things that will do that whereas impaired urine concentration is all about what's happening in the tubules, and so it's all about um, are the tubules able to do what they're supposed to do with water to preserve water if the body needs it and excrete it if the body doesn't. And that can be influenced by a whole range of things. Yes, the number of nephrons, but things like antidiuretic hormone, the effect of calcium potassium so hypercalcemia hypokalemia hyponatremia on the actual function of the uh, sodium potassium pumps and the concentration of sodium and urea in the medullary interstitium and so the, co- the that's the really complex bit of of renal function that everyone's heads go bah! because it involves and, I, and I'm not sure I can explain it in huge detail either but it does involve the mechanisms that the kidney uses to keep the medulla really concentrated so that water can flow in or out at various parts of the nephron when the body needs it but even without that I mean as soon as you start to say that you recognize that there are going to be factors that will impair the ability of an animal to concentrate its urine appropriately so when we think about an animal that is polyuric and polydipsic for example we divide them into two groups or three groups really one group is what we call the primary polydipsia dog so these are the dogs that want to drink so they drink and it's a head thing so it can be what we call psychogenic but it can also, it's probably the main driver in dogs that have Cushing's disease, for example. It's the main driver in cats that have hypothyroidism. So they, in other words, are drinking because they want to, in inverted commas, and they don't have any problem with concentrating their urine, most of them. Whereas you've got the other group of animals that, have got polyuria polydipsia because they have to drink because they can't concentrate their urine appropriately and so they have to drink sufficient they're losing too much water and they have to drink sufficient water to compensate for that because they can't concentrate their urine and those animals can be divided into those that have actual structural kidney disease so have chronic kidney disease for example or those that have a non renal cause of being unable to concentrate their urine appropriately and those are the animals that if they don't drink, either because they're denied water or they become unwell and they're not drinking, they're the ones that will get dehydrated and get really unwell. And so that's the really fundamental concept is that if you have an animal that has to drink, so it has primary polyuria, the big question is, is this animal um, got kidney disease, actual kidney disease, or does it have non-renal disease? And the misconception is, well, if it's azotemic, it must be kidney disease. But that's not true either. Firstly, because any animal that has an impaired ability to concentrate its urine, if they become dehydrated, they can easily get pre-renal azotemia, but they can't concentrate their urine properly because of whatever disease that they've got. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, even if they're not dehydrated, there are some disorders that can cause azotemia, without it being structural renal disease. And the two major ones are hypercalcemia and hyponatremia. So hypercalcemia caused by, you know, primary hyperparathyroidism or caused by... um, Uh, lymphoma you know paraneoplastic syndrome for example or sometimes vitamin d intoxication and that's not nephrocalcinosis so that's one of the confusions people think if they're hypercalcemic the reason why they're azotemic is because they've got nephrocalcinosis but most of them don't the reason why they're azotemic is because calcium constricts that arteriole that what's called the afferent arteriole that goes into the glomerulus and therefore slows the blood into the glomerulus, which then slows the glomerular filtration rate. So there's that group, So that, and that's very reversible with the modification of the um, hypercalcemia. And then hyponatremia, for whatever reason, so be it Addison's disease, be it gut loss, be it, um, they're probably the two major ones, um, hyponatremia impairs the kidneys ability to concentrate because sodium is incredibly important The concentration of sodium is incredibly important in the medullary interstitium in driving the osmotic gradient that helps the kidney retain water. So if you have a hyponatremic animal, they don't have enough sodium there. So even if they need to preserve water, they can't. And so they produce too much water and they become... And then with animals that have got profound hyponatremia, they also have a blunted stimulus to antidiuretic hormone because they're hyponatremic because one of the stimuluses to switch on your antidiuretic hormone and tell the body not to produce so much urine is the level of sodium in the blood and so if they're hyponatremic that affects blunted that's that's an awful lot in a few sentences of a very complex topic so i'm sure everyone's just going oh my god that's just what
0: So let's say it's not a very well monitored dog. I haven't done, it's been busy. I haven't done a decent history. We run a wellness, well, bloods for some reason in my older animal. It, is, it has a high creatine level. So we've got to pay attention. I just want to make sure I understood what you said earlier about the percentage of percentages of nephron loss. So the first thing that's going to go is going to be your specific gravity. Am I right? Before you become as a yep. So by virtue of that, yep. if I see a high creatine, creatine, and I go. All right, let's measure creatinine. Sorry, um, let's do that. Uh, I say, oh, well, let me check urine SG. If SG in that animal is normal, then you, then it's, then it can't be structural kidney disease. Am I like? Am I, am well, I- depends
1: on what you define as normal. So.
0: Okay, let's define normal. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So normal can be anything. So a normal specific gravity in a dog in particular can be anything. It can be (laughs) 1.001. It can be 1.060. It's it's normal depending on the situation. So it's Uh normal depending on the situation. So if you had an animal that genuinely had an increased creatinine Uh and you did a urine specific gravity, then for a dog to be absolutely sure that that kidney is functioning normally, the urine-specific gravity would be need to be more than 1030, 1035. And for a cat, it needs to be more than 1035, 1040. Below yep. that, anything below that could be inappropriate for that dog. Okay. It could be. Yeah. And if you have that, so if you've got azotemia and you've got that urine-specific gravity, then either that animal is dehydrated, or has got decreased renal perfusion for some reason um, it might have heart failure, for example, as long as you, again, you know, you've got to get your greyhounds out of here, or it's got something in its urine that's creating sort of an osmolarity thing. And so it can be dehydrated, but have high concentration. So we sometimes see that in diabetics, for example, because mm. yeah. they won't have a dilute urine. Um, well,
0: because the glucose is pushing up the SG.
1: Yeah. 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 And it also, they can, they have a driver to produce more urine, but they don't necessarily have an impaired ability to suck back the fluid. So they can be quite concentrated. So if you have that case, so you have an increased creatinine in this animal, then you do your urine specific gravity and it's highly concentrated. Well then probably what that's telling you is that your dog is dehydrated. Probably assuming it doesn't have heart failure, which hopefully you would have recognized. I, I think it's more it's more often that those profiles are going, in the supposedly well animal are going to throw out problems is much more likely to relate to liver enzymes and probably calcium just because the way calcium is than, than azotemia, But okay. that's the case. But that's if you if you have that animal and you do the urine-specific gravity and it's anything less than 1030, so one of the myths is that it can only be renal failure if it's isostenuric, which is a specific gravity. to 1.012 and that's a myth as well because isocynuria just means that the glomerular filtrate hasn't been concentrated nor diluted in its passage through the kidney but the question it can get concentrated in its passage through the kidney but it may not be enough for what the body needs so you can have animals that have renal failure with a specific gravity of 1020 you can have cats with renal failure with a specific gravity up to 1030 um what they can't have, and this is the other thing that's misunderstood, is that they cannot have hyposthenuria. They can't have dilute urine because it takes just as much nephron function to dilute urine, to actively dilute urine, to, to move more water out than solutes are retained as it is to concentrate it. So if you have an animal that is PUPD or is azotemic and they have a urine-specific gravity that's less than 1.008, and you're sure your refractometer's um, calibrated properly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So if it's down at 0.005 or four or three or two or one, the one thing you know is that that animal does not have structural renal disease. The one thing they can have that involves the kidney is they can have pyelonephritis. Because pyelonephritis, although it sort of mucks up the rule about structural versus functional, but pyelonephritis doesn't cause impaired urine concentration by damaging nephrons, it causes it by changing the osmotic gradient in the kidney because the E. coli, which it usually is, changes the osmotic gradient, just like happens in pyometron, for example. Mm. So, you know, in pyometron and in pyelonephritis, the bacteria affect the function of ADH and affect the osmotic gradient in the kidney. So pyelonephritis is is the very reversible It has to be, you have to call it renal disease because it is renal disease, but it's not structural loss of nephrons. Some of them can, of course, you know, if it's really bad, they'll go on to have structural loss of nephrons, but that's very reversible.
0: Okay. I just want to clarify. So you say that that thing is when we get an animal that's azotemic and then we check the SG and it is isosteneuric, the assumption to go yup, there's structural renal disease not necessarily true there are still other causes that and can that's you, not
1: necessarily uh, true so if it yeah so if you have an azotemic animal and the urine specific gravity is not highly concentrated and or it's got a history of PUPD, then um in the cat just to make things simple in the cat it is probably most likely going to be chronic kidney disease probably okay. now you know okay. i'm not saying never because um but in the dog then it depends on whether you're dealing with an animal who is dehydrated or not. So if they're not dehydrated, right, so there's nothing that you can see that they're dehydrated, their skin elasticity is fine, their mucous membranes are nice and moist, there's nothing nothing that suggests to you this animal is dehydrated, they don't have anything that suggests hypovolemia, they don't have anything that suggests decreased renal perfusion, then the two things you have to check for, absolutely must check for, is their sodium level, whether they're hyponatremic and their calcium level. Now, having said that, in the cat, the one thing, and I probably should, yeah, the one thing that will be very confusing is that cats who have Kahn's disease, so hyperaldosteronism, will present azotemic. They will be hypokalemic, which, of course, they can be in renal disease, and they can really look like kidney disease, but they've got hyperaldosteronism. And that's not, it's not a common disease, but it's certainly not totally unheard of. So the disease that you would confuse, most likely to confuse with renal disease in the cat would be hyperaldosteronism. So it's the one you have to watch for. They will often present with their hypokalemia being their driving uh, pathology that's causing their clinical signs. So weakness, for example. Whereas in the dog, the disorders that you need to worry about is anything causing hyponatremia, significant hyponatremia, so Addison's disease would be one, hypoadrenocorticism, gut loss of, of sodium. There are lots of things that will do it. Usually in those animals, there'll be other things going on that make it pretty obvious and you will have picked this up. But, and then the other one is hypercalcemia for whatever reason. And that can either be hypercalcemia that's driven by a PT, increased PTH, parathyroid hormone level. So they will have a normal or a low phosphate or it can be the ones that are like vitamin D and toxicosis that will have both increased calcium and increased phosphate, and they're the ones that are at risk of going on to develop nephrocalcinosis, whereas the other ones aren't. So, and if you look at the prevalence of diseases like hypoadrenocorticism, um, hyperparathyroidism, paraneoplastic hyperparathyroidism in lymphoma versus primary renal disease in dogs you know, I can't give you the numbers, but all of those diseases are just as likely as primary renal disease, particularly if it's an older dog, maybe not so much if it's a younger dog where you're dealing with congenital renal disease. So the the balance of probabilities just on the fact that these diseases are not rare means that if you assume that you have an azotemic dog that has inappropriate urine concentration and you assume without doing anything else it's got renal disease, you're probably going to be wrong two-thirds of the time. There are a lot of dogs in heaven now who've been put to sleep because of renal disease, which probably didn't have it.
0: Okay, everyone's still following. We'll make these show notes available to you. Just go to the clinical section of our website, that's thevetvault.com. And there'll be a button there that you can click to get them somehow. We'll figure it out. And then if you'd like to hear more from Jill, remember that she's joining us and about 50 of you live. And we're talking in the flesh live, not Zoom live, in Noosa for our first ever live event. 22 to 25 November, Jill and Prof. David Church right here in Noosa for some world style learning as well as some world style fun. So put on your smart hats, wax up your surfboards and bring your walking shoes. It's going to be epic. Link will be in the episode description, but our listeners will get 300 bucks off the full price. Just email us at vetveldpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll send you the discount code. Okay, Dr. Jepsen and kidney cats with high blood pressure. What's your go-to for hypertension, and do we differentiate dogs and cats? Again, I, in my head, hypertension is not as a big deal in dogs, or is that a misconception? It's more cats than dogs, right? Or
2: we certainly see the ocular manifestations much more commonly in cats than we see in dogs. I actually think measuring blood pressure is harder in dogs than it is in cats. Uh, in terms of getting quality, reliable readings, I think it can be much more challenging. In terms of medical management of hypertension, then I, yes, there are some differences. Again, um, speaking in terms of what we have in the UK, we have two licensed products for the cat. Um, so we have amlodipine and we have telmisartan so a calcium channel blocker and an angiotensin receptor blocker. And in the cat, really, either of those products can be used equally in terms of being first-line agents. Um, In the dog, because we see more proteinuric renal disease, we will often reach for either an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker initially because we'll be managing their proteinuria, and then we tend to use amlodipine as an additional agent. Um, And in the biggest difference that we see between cats and dogs is that cats typically are quite easy to control in terms of their hypertension and using a single agent whereas dogs are much more similar to humans in that multimodal treatment is is quite often necessary so uh, we quite often uh, need to use more than one drug for a dog. And would that be a matter of starting off with one say an ACE inhibitor or the um, blocker and then seeing how it goes and then potentially adding in something like amlodipine? Or do you kind of throw everything you've got and see how it goes and then potentially pull back on some things if it's stable? So we would do it incrementally, just as you said, to begin with. So start start with your ACE inhibitor or your angiotensin receptor blocker and then um, monitor and then add in the second drug. And, and in a dog, that's more likely is going to be necessary, but I think it still can be useful. I think one thing that people don't Often appreciators that with chronic kidney disease, the increase in blood pressure has probably been happening over a very long period of time. It's, we diagnose it suddenly because it's the point at which we start measuring blood pressure, but, but actually it's it's been gradually increasing. And that's very different from, for example, your acute kidney injury patient that goes from having a normal blood pressure yesterday to having a renal insult and then becoming hypertensive very rapidly. So in terms of controlling blood pressure in a chronic kidney disease patient, it's all about gradual slow reduction. Uh, obviously, I don't want them to be too high for too long but at the same time bringing blood pressure down over one to three weeks is, is is probably absolutely fine as long as we're seeing a gradual slow reduction over that time period so in those cases would you be how often would you be getting them back to assess where they're at in terms of dosing or adding something in is it a matter of a couple of weeks Do you want them in every week or how do you stage that Yeah, so patient dependent, definitely patient dependent. So a a patient that presents, for example, with ocular injury, you're probably going to get them back sooner. So maybe between three to seven days. If you have patients with hypertensive encephalopathy, then obviously you're probably going to be hospitalizing those patients. Happens less commonly with chronic disease, again, than than with acute. But I guess in some of the charity clinics that we work with, you know, sometimes it goes two weeks between us being able to get those cats back in um, to see us. So I think I would say ideally, you know, I would see them back on a weekly basis initially if if I could and more frequently if I had clinical concerns for target organ damage. Yeah. And that kind of weekly check, you'd primarily be reassessing blood pressure. Would you be um, repeating any other diagnostics? No, so probably just blood pressure uh, at least initially, and then in terms of monitoring of renal function parameters, that again is going to be on a patient by patient basis and depending on the stage of the disease as well. So, you know, an an iris stage two patients you know after diagnosis maybe then you would see them back and repeat parameters maybe after about a month to make sure that things were remaining relatively stable but thereafter you might go to every three to four months and then you might even extend out to to six monthly if things are looking very stable in contrast obviously with like with your your little dog then you know things are changing rapidly and that that could be every fortnight or or it could be more frequent than that depending on what's happened to them clinically and, and how many medications That we're changing. I think the only other thing to say in relation to the blood pressure monitoring and monitoring of renal parameters would just be with the um, angiotensin receptor blockers and ACE inhibitors, which can have an impact on um, GFR. So they drop glomerular capillary pressures. Um, So we do sometimes expect to see a small increase in creatinine with those. So if I was starting those in a later stage patient, I I might monitor renal parameters a bit more soon than I would, for example, starting amlodipine.
0: And then how what do you do if that does happen? Because that's something that's always confused me. You read the label for your heart patients on an ACE inhibitor, says don't give it to patients' kidney failure, but then you go, but if they have kidney failure, it's one of your treatments. Well,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's about stability and monitoring and tolerance. Um, so... If you've started a patient on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB and you see a small increase in creatinine, but clinically they're doing well, it's made no impact in terms of their activity, their other clinical parameters, then great, we'll stick with that. But if you've started it in a patient with, let's say, later IRIS stage 3 CKD, you'd probably purposefully be getting them back to check on that. And if you've seen more than a 25% increase in creatinine, you're going to have to be balancing, is this going to continue to increase do I actually need to stop this drug because it's having an adverse effect on this particular patient's um, renal function so it's just something to be cognizant of it's not that it would stop us from using them necessarily but we would be a lot more cautious about it I think the important thing is to do it It is very common in older cats. It's very common in cats with chronic kidney disease. I just passionately think that it it should be standard of care. It should be part of the physical exam in every cat over the age of nine. The blood pressure machine should be in the consult room and it should just be built into part of a, a routine physical exam for so these cats it should obviously be done first because you don't want to do your physical exam and then <laughs> yeah, your blood do that do, the, do the
0: take the temperature and then the, no <laughs> other yeah, way around no, no.
2: definitely <laughs> not that way around um but, but yes because once you get confident and once you're measuring blood pressure you will identify these patients and controlling hypertension is something that can make a big impact in terms of quality of life and the, there are the subtle changes that i think owners perceive in older cats as well the sort of behavioral changes changes changes, which sometimes, uh, whilst we can't say for certain are hypertension related, there are definitely clients who feel that their cats are better once the the hypertension is controlled.
0: How good was that? The rest of our series with the Roseanne focused on managing azotemia in those chronic kidney cases, as well as a good old deep dive on proteinuria All complicated topics, go and check it out. Next up, we've got Dr. Clint Udelman. And we are talking calcium. But before we jump in, a quick shout out for Clint. But first of all, a bit of background about Clint. Clint has a pretty sweet gig. He lives outside of Melbourne on a beautiful coastline with some spectacular surf. And he gets to explore that part of the world while he drives around to go and help other clinics with their complicated medical cases. But when he recorded this, he told me that he's doing way too much of the work bit and not enough of the fun things and the family things. So he needs a colleague. So if you are a medicine specialist or you know of a medicine specialist who's had enough of being stuck inside a large multidisciplinary hospital and enough of working weekends and being on call sometimes and you like the idea of being out and about to see your clients who are vets, by the way, no client consults, and you like the idea of total work flexibility and probably more dollars than you're currently getting paid, then maybe you should give Clint a call. We'll put his contact details in the episode description. But for now, let's get back to calcium. I want to talk about calcium. And if, if if we talk about kidneys being complicated and cheapest, that's something that does my head in completely that calcium when it relates to kidneys. So we've said in, in Jill's episode that hypercalcemia can be the cause of azotemia. But then there's the flip side as well where the sad kidney starts causing calcium issues. And then to the point where you start getting calcium deposited in the kidney. And there that, mm. that's where my that's why I get confused. Can we talk mm. about
3: that? Yeah. Yeah. I think calcium is a, a challenging aspect of kidney disease. Like we can get calcium deposition secondary to inflammation in any organ. Um, and, and that can happen with chronic kidney disease. We'll often see mineralization of the calyces or mineralization of the tissue. And sometimes it's even hard to distinguish from nephrolith. But yeah, so you might get a chronic kidney disease patient that's normocalcemic, but has calcium mineralization of its calices, let's say secondary to the the inflammation um, not necessarily nephrocalcinosis which is where you get mineralization of the kidneys usually with a concurrent high phosphate directly as a result of the increased calcium concentration in the
0: blood okay see that's where I, that's where i get vague so that that calcium concentration is that because of the kid is a secondary thing to the kidney failure or is it is that the scenario where that's the primary problem because of a parathyroid
3: issue or something correct correct but but it's probably more of vitamin d intoxication that's leading to a high calcium and a high phosphate that then leads to nephrocalcinosis because normally you need a combination of a high calcium and phosphate to result in mineralization in the kidney and and parathyroid disease usually like primary hyperparathyroidism will have a high calcium but low normal phosphate so you don't necessarily get nephrocalcinosis and disease that way and just to put vitamin
0: d into context that's like a redenticide issue but old old redenticides it's yeah. not around or is that actually is that still a thing like what, like
3: i think very old redenticides but also like now it's a common cream that humans use so it's more like cats licking their odors possibly that have vitamin d creams being put on um, or occasionally eating a vitamin d tablet of a human or something like that it's pretty uncommon but it, it can happen so nephrocalcinosis so pathological calcium
0: deposits in the kidneys that cause kidney problems you so say that's mostly going to be vitamin d yeah usually. okay right and, and again so there's no pre-existing kidney disease that causes that that's because of the The kidneys take a hit secondarily. It's that, that's where.
3: And and kind of most chronic kidney disease patients, not all, but most usually have a a low to low normal calcium. You do occasionally get the ones with high. So those ones would certainly be less likely to get, let's say, like calcium deposition secondary to that high blood calcium. But that's an indicator or a mark of a whole different condition which we can discuss now or later which is secondary renal hyperparathyroid my
0: brain just exploded there because that kind of stuff i had to go read it up <laughs> it's
1: just like it, yeah. it, it is
3: it is very complex but it, it i think it can really simply often be broken down to just phosphate levels like phosphate levels for me with like i, I get, i'm really kind of uh, particular with phosphate levels when it comes to chronic kidney disease patients And and the tricky thing is your standard blood reference range is not the guide you wanna be using for phosphate levels when you've got chronic kidney disease patients. Iris have their own reference range targets for phosphate levels. And a lot of those targets fall within the standard blood reference range. You might have a printout of a blood that's got normal phosphate in inverted commas, but for that level of iris kidney disease, that phosphate level is way too high for that patient. And so you may not institute treatment like a phosphate binder if it's already on a renal diet, but you really should. Uh-huh.
0: Okay. Is this dogs and cats equally or one more than dogs the other? and
3: cats? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. So I think the the standard reference range for phosphate, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like 0.8 to 2.2 or something like that. And um, Iris recommend depending on the stage, like the more advanced the stage, the I guess you could, let's say the, High. The phosphate can be because you know you've got more significant kidney disease. But for stages three and four, I think it's 1.9. Or for stage four, it's 1.9. It ha- it should be under, and that's still within the reference range. For stage three, it's 1.6. Oh, and wow. for stages 1.2, it should be under 1.5. So they're all reference range, but they're all also possibly higher for that stage of disease. So that's only if you have renal disease.
0: That, that, correct. Correct. So
2: that's okay. correct. Chronic, mm-hmm. chronic, chronic, chronic kidney disease. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's, so, that's so, really cool.
0: That's new. That's awesome. Yeah, can, can we dig again? I'm, I'm sure we learned this somewhere, but so why do we care so much about the phosphate in kidney disease and how does it come into play with the secondary renal hyperparathyroidism?
3: Yeah, like phosphate kind of, if we go way back into the 70s when they did some of the first studies on dogs, they did nephrectomies on dogs. Uh-huh. Um, you know, with great ethics approval, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> well, take, and, both ki- wait, take both your kidneys out. Well they, took, well, they took one. At least they left them okay. with one because they needed to study the function of that one remaining one. And then they compared, let's say, a phosphate-restricted versus non-phosphate-restricted diet. And this wasn't even protein-restricted. This was just simply phosphate-restricted. Like the two-year survival rate was well over double, um, or 75% two-year survival rate in those fed phosphate-restricted diet versus 33% said non-phosphate restricted and we know like phosphate is one of the earliest markers that'll rise really early with reduction in GFR and then this whole cascade of events basically happens where we get an increase in the fiberglass factor fgf 23 we get a decline in calcitriol or calcitriol levels basically vitamin D which in part is secreted from the kidney so as our Kidneys are dying. We have less cellular capability of secreting vitamin D. And then we start to get a reduction in ionized calcium. And then that triggers an increase in PTH level. Because that PTH or parathyroid hormone is going to try and bring that calcium back up into normal reference range. Okay. And then we get all the deleterious effects of parathyroid hormone, including osteoclastic bone resorption and um, various issues around the body. So phosphate to me kind of underpins this whole um calcium phosphate parathyroid calcitriol interplay and we really i think as vets we, we really need to be quite aggressive in our phosphate control
0: okay cool i'm just trying to i'm just trying to summarize that whole cycle so kidneys are sad kidneys don't make the hormones that help you regulate your calcium the parathyroid says oh there's not enough calcium let's pump out more hormone to get some more calcium and the body yeah, says well yeah. let's get some calcium out of our bones and 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 that's when you can get calcium being deposited in the renal cortex as well or my uh, misunderstanding possibly, that? no
3: possibly but that's probably more just to normalize blood calcium levels
0: okay um yeah okay cool
3: so is that calcium well kind of then we kind of have the option to do we supplement with calcitriol, you know, do we add in something like vitamin D? Or there's another drug, I'm not sure, not many people have heard of Cynocalcet, um, which is another drug as well that kind of plays into this whole secondary renal hyperparathyroidism dilemma. Uh, and so basically in terms of management from that perspective, first thing is we want to aggressively manage our phosphate level. So renal diet is obviously phosphate restricted. So that's our first sort of line therapy. And then if that's not enough, then a phosphate binder. And then we want to monitor phosphate levels and get it to that iris target reference range. And once we've done that, then we want to reassess calcium and see where calcium's at and ideally an ionized calcium. And then if ionized calcium is still low, despite aggressive phosphate management, that's the situation where you probably want to introduce some calcitriol, and vitamin D, just to help the body up that calcium level into the normal range and reduce that excess parathyroid secretion. And it's kind of on the flip side. At that point, when phosphate is normal, if calcium's high, then we want to introduce that drug called Cinacalcet, which basically does the opposite. It kind of tricks the parathyroid into thinking there's more calcium in the body and it lowers the calcium levels. Okay. And Smart. reduces the parathyroid secretion.
0: Cool. All right. That makes sense. Gee, you look stunned. All right. <laughs> Sadly, when we get to this kind of chronic, Kidney disease management. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do it a lot in general practice and emergency. It's like, oh, it okay, came back to your GP. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <The> emergency <laughs> event, and you guys, yeah, I don't
3: <laughs> a it, is, it, it is super complex. There's a great flow chart that I can give you if you want to put in your show notes or anything oh. that's re- really just breaks it down, super simple. Um, and, and I mean, this, this sort of level of renal disease management would typically kind of be specialist level you know not not many gps would go to this level I, I hope they wouldn't do um but most kind of um you know tap out at this point and, and refer it on
0: mm. okay uh, it's, it's just e- even though you might not do it yourself i still find it really useful to know when you should be referring so you, knowing about these sort of things to go all right this is, i remember glenn said that think about it I, I, this is like behind me off you go I go see his face first there you go kidneys in a nutshell hope you enjoyed it hope you learned something hope it didn't scare you too much we've got a lot more kidney stuff over on the clinical podcast last week we recorded an epic episode about acute kidney injury with ECC specialist Dr. Rob Webster go to vvn.supercast.com for your free two week trial and again if you need the notes on these they're really going to help you I use them all the time go to thevetbulb.com and we'll have a link up there for you to get access to the show notes enjoy have a great week